1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 31. Of course, the apostle Paul writes these things, but he writes them to the church in Corinth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, even today, even here in 2024, isn't that amazing? These words come to us with authority and power, the same kind of authority as if the Lord himself were speaking these things to us. So let's hear together the word of Christ. From 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 to 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. Well, as I mentioned, we're we're diving into this idea today of gospel fluency, thinking about these convictions, thinking about what the gospel does what the gospel means, how the gospel changes us, what the gospel forms. You know, we, we, you've heard me say before that, you know, if you go around and ask a lot of Christians, what is the church? What is the church? You'd hear a lot of different answers. I think the the modern day American Christian is kind of confused on what the church is, but, but how I think we see the church described in scripture this idea that this Greek word ekklesia, which is translated church, the ekklesia is the Greek, it, it, it fundamentally means a people who have been called out by the gospel, a people who are called together in the gospel, and a people who are on mission for the gospel. The, the word ekklesia, it's, it's kind of a combination of two Greek words, ek, which means out of, and kaleo, to call out. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, if you're a part of the church, you've been called out. You've been called to a new identity. You've been called to a new life. You've been called to a new kingdom. You've been called to a totally 
different frame. You know, Jesus says it this way, you must be born again. Now that's actually pretty profound. You know, when I was a little, when I was younger, I remember that language. It was more common in church. You know, are you a born again Christian? Or have you had a born, have you been born again, right? And what that came to mean in those times was often, have you had a religious experience? Have you had kind of a profound religious experience? Have you had a born again experience? It was kind of a, it was, it was code word for a religious experience, well, and as I grew older, and I think more common now, I, I didn't hear that kind of language as much. In fact, the way that people talk about Jesus as I, as I grew was more, of a, uh, was more of a life coach, was more of a teacher. Here's practical wisdom. Jesus can help you make better decisions. Jesus can kind of help you advance morally. Jesus can kind of help you along the way. And I actually think that that those two ideas are pretty true of kind of American Christian life. On one side, you have people that Christianity to them is, a, is about a spiritual experience and they want experiences, spiritual experiences. Or then there's another kind of group of people that, that Christianity to them is more about practical wisdom or kind of making moral improvements in your life. What are, what are some things that Jesus can do to kind of help me out in the real world, right? Now, now Christianity certainly is full of experiences and emotional experiences and spiritual experiences. And, and Christianity is certainly full of practical wisdom, but it's not just that. In fact, if that's your understanding of, of, of Christianity or the Christian life, you're kind of missing the point. Jesus says, and I want you to hear this, you must be born again. You, you're called to an entirely different identity, an entirely different life. That's a profound analogy that's really more than an analogy, uh, you know, what is being a Christian like? Is, is it like moving and getting a new job? That's a very profound experience. I mean, if you ever move to a new city, you don't know anybody, you get a new job, you kind of have a whole new life there. Is Christianity like having, getting married and having kids? Again, that's very profound. That'll really change you. We just talked about that with the dedications. That'll really change your identity. No, no, no. <laughs> Christianity is so much more than that. To be a follower of Jesus, it's about, it's being born again, <laughs> It's taking on a whole new identity. It's submitting to a whole different kind of kingdom, to a whole different kind of order, to a whole different kind of life. Don't you see? This is, this is, this is massive. This is profound. It's not about just advancing morally or, or having you know, experience after experience. A lot of people refer to the idea of Christianity as the upside-down kingdom, and I like that. Because the kingdom of Jesus is so different than any other kingdom. It's upside down. That's what Paul is talking about here. You know, Sandra McCracken, who was here about a month ago or so for our Advent service, she has this great song. It's called Wondrous Things. And she talks about in the song this king. And she says, you know, there is a king who will defend the oppressed. And there is a king that will will put down the oppressor. There is a kingdom, I love this line, where the poor are precious. There is a kingdom where the lost are rescued, where everyone is safe, where no one is exploited. And you listen to the song and it's very beautiful. But as you're listening to the song, you're like, wait a second. <laughs> this king is like no actual king, <laughs> like no actual political leader. Nobody's like this king, except for the true king, the Lord Jesus. His kingdom is so different. 
His value system is so upside down. It's so different from anything in this world. So we're calling this sermon a vision for gospel fluency. Now, what does that mean? Of course, it's one of our values. But what, what do we mean by that value? When, when I, we first moved to Atlanta, we, we started getting to know the Christians here, kind of interacting and how they understood like the gospel and how it applied to their life. And uh, this analogy came to mind. I, you know, I speak a little Spanish. I mean, just a very un poquito, you know. I speak just a little Spanish. I mean, I can kind of get around a little bit. You know, I know like Izquierda and a la derecha, you know. And I can kind of order some food in a restaurant and I can ask where the baño is and I can kind of get, I can kind of get around a little bit in Spanish, right? But if I, if I wanted to have a meaningful conversation with someone that didn't know English, somebody who's just a Spanish speaker, I would be very dependent on a Spanish translator. I would have to have somebody that translated for me and for this person. And, and as we got to Atlanta, we, we kind of realized that, you know, a lot of the Christians in Atlanta kind of know the gospel about like how I know Spanish, right? They know some of the big ideas, some of the big concepts, but they're not fluent. And so they can't really apply the gospel to all the parts of their lives. And they certainly can't apply the gospel to other people's lives, to their friends, to their neighbors. And so they're very dependent. We, we noticed that many of the Christians only were very dependent on what I would call gospel translators, right? And so it's, it was always like, listen to this podcast or let me take you to this preacher. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with resources, but the, the Christians themselves weren't able to begin to apply the word of God and to apply the gospel to this or to that situation. And so one of our visions for our church, now if you're saying, I don't know if I'm gospel fluent, that's okay because that's what we're trying to do. That's the whole project here. We, we wanna be a gospel fluent church. We wanna be a, a church full of people that begin to, begin to think through this gospel lens, that, that begin to take on this new identity, that, that, that begin to live like our King Jesus and not like the kingdoms and the kings of this world. Now, that's a massive project. That's exactly what Paul is getting at here. He, he's talking about people that were, are fluent in the gospel, that, that, that view the world differently, that see power and wisdom in a totally different way than everyone around them. Notice how he begins the text. He says, the thing that makes sense of the world to us, the thing that totally makes the world make sense, the, the foundational truth of our lives is the word of the cross. It's the cross of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. And yet, the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who don't know him. It's, it's foolishness to the broader world. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And so really, I don't have points today so much, but I have a statement I want to talk about. The gospel, and I want you to hear this, the gospel is foolish, offensive, and powerful and wise. The gospel is both foolish, offensive, and it's also powerful and wise. 
So let's talk about the first part there, that the gospel is foolish and offensive. There's a lot in this text that I wish I had time to get to, but, but verse 22 really helps us. He, he's talking about the context that these Corinthian Christians live in. And he says, there's, there's Jews around you, there's Greeks around you. He says, the Jews demand signs, right? Your Jesus is so powerful, show me, right? Show me a sign, do a magic trick, right? Do, do something powerful and then we'll believe. The, give me an experience, right? It's, it's not too far from kind of our common desire for Jesus, right? Give me, give me an experience I'll never forget, then I'll believe, right? The Greeks are different though. The Greeks, much more sophisticated, they want wisdom. Give me something practical, right? Help me live my day-to-day life. That's what I really need. And Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's all we have. The only thing that we have, the only thing that makes sense to us is the cross. The only thing that makes sense to us is the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. And then he says this, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. Now, translating Greek to English is hard. Translating English is hard because if you've never done that, you, you know that there's not always one for one words there. And so I'm not trying to beat up on the translators here, but I think it's good to kind of dive a little bit into these words. They're very interesting. The Jews demand signs. We preach, the, we preach Christ crucified. And it says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. As you dig a little deeper into that word for stumbling block, the, the Greek there is actually the word scandalon. Do you hear it? Scandalon. Christ crucified. It's a scandal. You know what a scandal is? A scandal is something bad that happens that makes you kind of pull away. Ugh, I don't want to be, be, be associated with that. It's scandalous. Um, I actually was reading an article recently, and it was about how people viewed pastors. And it was also about how people viewed like attorneys and doctors. And it was, it was more, actually the article was more about how people view doctors. But anyway, but the, the point I was interested in was pastors. And it said people used to really trust pastors. And like pastors used to have like a 95% are pastors trustworthy? Yes, right? But it said, but all that started to change in the 80s. And what happened in the 80s? There was a lot of scandals, right? Like Jim Baker and Jim, you know, Jimmy Swaggart and all these guys. Most of y'all have never heard those names before in your life, but it was really bad, right? these pastors had kind of swindled money and done these really sinful and horrible things. It was scandalous. And it changed people's whole perception of pastors and even Christianity. It was a scandal. It was something bad that happened that kind of made people move away. For, for the Jews, the notion that God would become a man was scandalous. And the notion further that that God-man would die and through his death, you would find life. And I did Christ crucified, the Messiah crucified. That's scandalous. It's scandalous. It pulled away from Christianity. And to the Greeks, the sophisticated Greeks, well, it was just foolishness. It was just folly. Again, the Greek is a little helpful here. The Greek uh, for folly here, it's moros. Do you hear it? 
don't be a moros, you know. Don't be a moron. Do you really believe that this Jewish guy on a cross is the answer to everything? That's moronic. Just give me some practical wisdom, right? Just give me something that will help me in the real world. It's foolishness to the Greeks. It's a scandal to the Jews. Here's the deal. Our world is not too far from this. As I mentioned, a lot of people, that's what they've done with Christianity. It's either become this experience, the Jews demand signs, or it's become wisdom. The Greeks seek wisdom. In modern America, you know, there's certainly critiques of Christianity, but there's a, there's a kind of Christianity that's acceptable. It's a kind of Christianity that's personal. You kind of keep to yourself, and it's kind of general. It doesn't critique other religions, other worldviews. It's what sociologist Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Actually, he wrote a really helpful book about 15 years ago, and he says that the most common religion in America is not Christianity, People say Christianity, but it's not a kind of Christianity that actually resembles orthodoxy. It's this moralistic, I need some moral framework, therapeutic, you know, I need like a little imaginary friend Jesus to help me when I get sad. And it's deism. It's not that well-defined, you know? Now that, that kind of Christianity is not that scandalous. It's not that moronic you will say, well, sure, that, that's a little faith that'll kind of help you along in the real world. But there's a kind of Christianity that is scandalous. There's a kind of Christianity that is moronic. It's the kind of Christianity that believes that Jesus is the only way to God. It's the kind of Christianity that takes the Bible very seriously as God's word. It's the kind of Christianity that believes in heaven and hell. It's the kind of Christianity that takes the teaching of Jesus about the poor and about the foreigner very seriously. It's the kind of Christianity that takes what Jesus says about money very seriously. Like Matthew 6, you cannot serve both God and money. It's the kind of Christianity that takes what Jesus says about sin and character very seriously. I think of Galatians 5, the sexually immoral, the impure, the sensual, the idolaters, those who are jealous, those who blow up in anger, those who are full of rivalries and divisions, those who are full of envy and drunkenness and orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the kind of Christianity that takes what Jesus says about loving one another and forgiving one another very seriously. It's scandalous. (laughs) You see, the kind of Christianity that is seen in our current time as scandalous and moronic is the kind of Christianity that takes Jesus very seriously. He's not just whoever you want him to be. He actually is who he says he is. In our age, there's a kind of Christianity that's scandalous and moronic, and it's the kind of Christianity that takes Jesus seriously. That is scandalous. That's moronic. And so what we do, it's what I just said before, what we do is we end up softening Jesus. 
we end up saying, how can we make Jesus appealing to the Jews? <laughs> well, we need experiences, right? We, they, the Jews want power. Here's power. How can we make uh, Jesus appealing to the Greeks? Well, the, the Greeks want wisdom. Here's wisdom. We end up taking a form of Jesus, or we end up taking Jesus and making him a more acceptable form. How can we make Jesus appealing to modern day Americans? And what we end up doing with that is we end up stripping away from Jesus all of his real power. They say Christ crucified is a scandal. They say the cross is foolishness. But we say the cross, and I want you to hear this, and every other offensive thing that is true of Jesus, we say the cross and the offensive things about Jesus are actually the wisdom of God. They're actually the power of God. If you take those things away, you take away the wisdom. You take away the power. You take away the real power of the cross. Let me explain. The, the world, the wisdom of our age would say, blessed are the rich. But the wisdom of the cross says this, blessed are the poor. The wisdom of our age would say, don't ever let anyone speak ill of you. Protect yourself, promote yourself, market yourself. But the wisdom of the cross the world that the cross makes wise says, no, humble yourself. Let God lift you up, just like Jesus did on the cross. The wisdom of our age would say, true sexual fulfillment comes in having many sexual partners. But the wisdom of the cross would say, no, that's meaningless. True sexual fulfillment is only found within the context of true self-sacrificing, self-giving love. That's where sexual fulfillment is found. It only comes through giving of yourself, just like Jesus has done. You see, the, you see what the cross does? <laughs> it turns everything upside down. It turns the wisdom of our age totally upside down. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a scandal to the Greeks, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, people called from Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's scandalous. <laughs> That's so different from our age. The powers of this world would say, put everyone else down so that you can be brought up. But the cross says, humble yourselves, put yourself down, go to the lowest place so that you can bring others up. The rulers of this world, and certainly in the time of Jesus, would say, true kings, real kings, they put people on crosses. And that's how they protect and build their kingdom. But don't you see, the wisdom of the cross says, no, the true king himself goes to a cross. He hangs himself on a cross. And that's how the kingdom is built. Don't you see? Don't you see what the gospel does? Don't you see what a gospel-fluent vision of the world will do to you? 
It gives you a totally different plane than this world. Don't you see what a, a cross-shaped vision of the world? It gives you a totally different value system than, than everyone around us. The world looks at it and says, scandal. <laughs> That's wrong, moronic. But to those who are called, I want you to hear this. To those who are called, those who have been called by God, those who've tasted it, those who've experienced it, you know what you say? That's the wisdom of God. That's the power of God. That's something wiser and greater and more powerful than anything this world has. That's the cross-shaped life. That's the gospel-fluent life. Here's the question then. Have you tasted it? Have you experienced it? Has the gospel transformed you? Did you have a gospel-shaped vision of the world, a cross-shaped vision of the world? Or do you just have a world-shaped vision of the world? You know, Paul kind of gets to this. Verse 26. He, it's an interesting verse. He says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. All the things that the world would say are valuable, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Now, what is this saying now, one of the things it's not saying, and I want to be careful here, Paul is not saying that no powerful person can become a Christian. I mean, Paul himself was a pretty powerful person. There's a famous story of Selena Hastings. She was the Countess of Huntingdon. Think, uh, any of y'all seen uh, uh, Downton Abbey, right? So yeah, we got some hands. Okay, big Downton Abbey fans out there. But anyway, Think Downton Abbey, Countess, she, you know, she was married to the Earl, right? Well, Selena Hastings became a Christian in the 18th century revivals in England. So this is George Whitfield, this is, Char this is John and Charles Wesley, this is the Wesley revival. She came to faith and, and her whole world got turned upside down. And now she was a noble, right? She was wealthy. She had all this stuff going for her. And she had this line, she was reflecting on this first. In fact, she actually ended up using her wealth, she ended up using her influence to, to basically fund the Methodist church early on. Amazing woman, amazing legacy she has. But she was reflecting on this verse one time and she said, I was saved by the letter M. And what she meant by that was, it doesn't say not any of you were wise. Not any of you were of no worth. She was of no worth. She said, no, it's not many. <laughs> not many. I was saved by the letter M. So two things here. First, to be saved, you have to realize that worldly power never really was power. I mean, what is a noble birth worth anyway, ultimately, before God? What is worldly riches worth anyway. It's also limited. What is worldly wisdom? It's also limited. 
There's a, there's a famous story about Addison Leach. He was a philosophy professor, theology professor. He, he taught at Gordon-Conwell. Um, and uh, he actually was married to Elizabeth Elliot, if y'all know who that is. And then he actually died, like her first husband had died. He, was, he died of cancer. But anyway, he was, uh, he was teaching there at Gordon-Conwell, and he had some students that got excited about the Lord, and they said they wanted to go be missionaries. And so their parents, who were paying all of this money, for a good education, were furious, right? We didn't pay all this money so y'all could go serve the Lord, right? You know. And so they got mad at, you know, the, the girl, well, not mad, but they were frustrated with the girls. And so they said, let's set, let's set up a meeting. We'll get the professor in. We'll talk some sense to these girls. And they, they got Addison Leach there and they had sat the girls down and they said, listen, you know, look, we know you've had a religious experience. We know you're very excited about these things. You're young, you're impressionable. But look, this world's hard. You're gonna need some securities. You know, you can't just go chasing all your dreams. Um, what you really need is a master's degree, right? What you need to do is stay in school, get a master's degree, and then maybe you'll forget about all this missionary thing. And they kind of looked at Addison Leach, the professor. Again, he's Cambridge educated, very brilliant person. They kind of look at him like, you know, back us up here, professor. And here's what Addison Leach said. He said, we are on a little ball of rock called earth. We're spinning through space at millions of miles an hour. Even if in your lifetime, that little rock doesn't bump into the sun or some comet, even if it, that doesn't happen, someday under every single one of us, a little trap door is going to open and every one of us is going to fall off. And underneath will either be the everlasting arms of God or nothing at all. And you think a master's degree is going to give you security? To be saved, you have to realize, once you hear this, you have to realize that worldly power never really was power. You have to be broken to depend on God, to trust in Christ, to get the cross-shaped vision of the world. And I want you to hear this, which is why it doesn't say not any, but it does say not many. It's hard to be both rich and a Christian. It's hard to be both of noble birth and a Christian. It's hard to be both very well educated and a Christian, because here's why. You end up depending on those things. You end up putting your identity and your security and your life in these small, false identities, these small, false securities. No, you have to be broken of those things. You have to realize, I'm flying through space in a little piece of rock. You have to realize, I have no control over my destiny. You have to be broken of those things, and that's when you can really depend on the Lord. And that's when you can really see that Christ crucified the fact that God has come to save you, that's actually the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. And that's where, that's where the goodness really is. And when you start to see the goodness of God, then, and here's the second thing, <coughs> then you realize if you're really saved, it totally changes the way you think about your worldly power. Some of you will have worldly power. You do have educations. You do have jobs. You do have influences. Well, if you're really in Christ, that changes the way you use your power. It's not about you. You don't need an identity from those things. You don't need security from those things. You have it from the Lord. So all of a sudden, all of those things that God has entrusted to you 
just becomes things that you steward for the sake of God, for the sake of others. They aren't about achieving some worldly security or status if you have a cross-shaped life. Now you realize that God has entrusted you, that you're called by God to steward those things for the sake of others. And I want you to hear this. This is where the fun is. This is when life really, this is when you say, this is the power of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God. But the money that God has entrusted me, it's not just about me. I'm not just supposed to spend it on myself and my comforts all the time. No, God has entrusted me this. Not that I can never enjoy gifts that God's given me, but God has entrusted me this for the sake of others. Look at Jesus. He who was rich became poor so that we who were poor, utterly poor before God, might be rich. Don't you see? That's what the cross does. It totally inverts it. Look at work. We think the world says work's all about your status. The gospel says no. Work, God has given you work to do something good and honorable that serves others and that pleases God. Look at Jesus. What did he say? the, the, The son of man has not come to be served, but to serve. The world says get relationships with people that'll praise you and celebrate you and focus on you. The gospel says, Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Look how I have loved you. I've given myself totally for you. Don't you see? This is the cross-shaped life. This is a gospel-fluent life. It gets turned upside down. Is the gospel impacting your life? Is this your frame? Is this your vision? Are you gospel-fluent? Or do you just know how to ask where the bathroom is? Is it really impacted all of you? Is, it, is, it, is the gospel sinking deep into the way that you think about all parts of your life? Now, you might be saying, no. I don't have a cross-shaped life. I think about myself all the time. I worry about myself all the time, not others. I don't worship. I spend all my money on myself. <laughs> Think about how can I get the next thing that'll make me more comfortable and give me more status? I only really work for myself. I don't serve people. I don't do anything to humble myself. In fact, if I'm honest, I want everyone to serve me all the time. If that's you, I have good news for you. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. He came to save selfish people. He came to give his life for greedy people. He came to give his life for sexually perverse people and self-righteous people and self-centered people and impatient people and angry people and bitter people. Just like you. And just like me. And the good news for us today is if you'll humble yourself, if you'll realize that God has done this for you, if you'll look away from yourself and toward him, if you'll realize how broken you really are, and you'll look toward him, who's the only source of security, who's the only source of life, he will save you. You see, we've been talking about this all last month. Jesus has lived the life that you should have lived. He has achieved righteousness for us. And that means that you don't have to prove yourself before God. Jesus has proven 
Jesus has given a record of righteousness on your behalf. It's imputed to you through faith. And Jesus died the death that you and I should have died. And if that's true, that means that we can know God and stand before God without fearing judgment. We've already been judged. We've already, it's already been paid for on the cross. And Jesus has overcome death in the power of his resurrection. And if that's true, that means that in him you have a sure hope. You'll be with God. You can know God. And here's the beauty of the gospel. I want you to hear this. If you really believe that, if that's touched you, that will change you. And it'll start to change you from the inside out. You know, the, the, the Christian life is not forcing yourself into some sort of false humility, even though there are disciplines that, that help us grow in these things. But if it's not rooted in the gospel, it'll never do its work. The Christian life is not about forcing yourself into some sort of false humility. Oh, I better act like I'm humble because Jesus likes that. No, it's about realizing who you are before God and actually becoming humble. It's, it's not about forcing yourself into some sort of false compassion toward the other person. Oh, it's a Christian thing to do to like say, I'm sorry. No, it's, it's about actually knowing God and the compassion of Christ. And because you know him, you actually become a compassionate person. It's not, it's not about forcing yourself into being a giving person and a self-giving person. No, it's about actually realizing all that God has given you and realizing that in the riches of God, you have an abundance and that will make you generous and that will make you, with an, that will give you an eye toward others. Don't you see? Has the cross touched your life? Has the cross shaped your life? Jews, <laughs> some people, they just want signs. Give me powers. Do something exciting, right? You know, at least give me a laser, right? The Greeks demand wisdom. Give me something I can do. I need something I can do to, on Monday so I can keep serving myself in a more shrewd way, right? No. Paul says, and I say, we preach Christ and him crucified. The Greeks say it's a scandal. The Greeks say it's moronic. The Jews say it's a scandal. But to those who are called, to those who've been touched by the cross, ah, it's wisdom. It's power. It's true wisdom. It's true power that comes from God himself. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. I want you to just, before I pray, just to meditate on these things. What is it that's shaping your life? Where are you finding your, your value, your security, your identity? What are you chasing after? Is it the Lord? Is it his people? Has the cross shaped you? And where God brings conviction, look to Jesus. Jesus.
Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Martin Luther has this famous quote where he's talking about sin and he says, you know, we're going to sin. And when we do, we must trust even more boldly in the grace and mercy of God. And so as the Lord brings conviction to you today, that's actually the kindness of God. I'll never forget one time I was feeling in deep conviction and just questioning my faith. And I was talking to my old buddy, Ben Bowden, who's a pastor in Enterprise, Alabama. And he just said to me, Jason, this is just a sign that God loves you. The Lord disciplines those he loves. He brings conviction to those that he loves. And so if the Lord's bringing conviction in your heart today, consider where you are, what you've centered your life on. Do what Luther said. Trust even more boldly in the abundant grace and mercy of God that's been displayed toward you on the cross. And as you do, you will feel and experience the love and mercy of Christ that actually changes you, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Father, increase our faith. Help us to be a people that live not by signs and experiences, <laughs> not by you know, just simple wisdom that we think can help us with our day, but people that live by Christ and Him crucified. It's a folly to many Atlantans and it's a scandal to others, but to us, it's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. I pray that we would see that and our whole lives would be shaped by the cross today. Do this work in our hearts, Lord, increase our faith now, I pray in Jesus' name.